This is the Return to Order Moment with Edwin Benson. Bringing you insights, analysis, and information for a culture in crisis. The leftist plot. Saturate life with evil from childhood until death. Every day, the modern-day left works to insinuate their ways into your child's life. That statement sounds alarmist, but we at the Return to Order moment are ready to back up that statement with specific information. That is the goal of today's podcast. We begin with the subject of pornography. Satan and his followers know that pornography is perhaps the fastest way to gain a foothold into your child's mind. God created us with a natural attraction to members of the opposite sex. Satan is quite willing to short-circuit those important impulses to accomplish evil ends. We see examples all around us. Until recently, America's public libraries were parents' allies in the fight against pornography. Unfortunately, that is no longer so. Mr. Edwin Benson examines the current climate of the public library and the reasons that they encourage the use of pornography in his essay, Why Leftists Promote Porn to Children in America's Woke Libraries. That longtime leftist journal, The New Republic, published an article on the current controversy over pornography in children's books. It is a masterpiece of confusion. Its author, Melissa Grant, must have little grasp of how the debate developed, or she is deliberately trying to sow irrational chaos in her wake. The title of the article is evocative. Conservatives are trying to ban books in your town. Librarians are fighting back. The message is plain enough. One can argue about the nature of the so-called ban, but the rest is relatively straightforward. The actual confusion is contained in the subtitle. How a right-wing mania is destroying the social fabric of communities across America. The leftist argument is simple. The first point is that libraries exist to educate and enlighten the public. Next, communities nationwide established and now maintain public libraries to encourage literacy and knowledge for the general population. Thus, these libraries constitute an essential part of the social fabric of our nation, and any attack upon them threatens society. The library movement gained public support in the United States during the last two decades of the 19th century. By the mid-20th century, virtually every community in the nation had some sort of public library. In rural areas, these might be simple rooms in the attic of the county courthouse. In large cities, massive and complex systems with highly trained staff developed. Library science became a course of study in universities nationwide. It soon became apparent that children had different needs than their elders. They required easily read books with simpler storylines. Children often went to the public library to complete school assignments. Exciting children's imaginations was essential. The children's librarian became a fixture in such spaces. They often had specialized training. The hero of the New Republic's article is a children's librarian named Mary Graham Hunter, who works in Ferndale, Michigan, a Detroit suburb. She explains her career choice. Quote, The reason I wanted to be a children's librarian specifically is because it's one of the few places where a child is treated as their own entity, 
unquote. By using the word entity, she seems to assert that children should have a separate existence outside that of other influences, like the family. Such claims are confirmed in a subsequent paragraph, where she explains that her children's room is a place where children are not treated, quote, like people with lesser amounts of rights, unquote. As the rest of the article makes very plain, the so-called right is the ability to gain access to information that many consider pornographic. That is where the article goes so painfully wrong. Until recently, no one, other than those who espoused the most extreme perversions, argued that children had the right to explicit material on human sexuality. Indeed, the overwhelming consensus was that children had the right to be protected from such material. One aspect of being a child was the protection of one's innocence. The American Library Association echoed the contrary view in a document called State of America's Libraries, published in April 2022. It contained this observation by ALA President Patricia Wong, quote, Libraries remain ready to do what we always have, make knowledge and ideas available, so people are free to choose what to read. Unquote. However, libraries have never made such knowledge and ideas available without filters. All libraries ban books if the word ban is interpreted as the refusal to put certain books on the shelves. Librarians have always made choices. They still do. Some choices are made based upon cost, interest, or lack of shelf space. However, there is, and always was, another criterion. Some books contain indecent ideas and images with no educational value. So a library might have a biography of Adolf Hitler, but would shun a book published by neo-Nazis. The same library might have a book about a famous murder case, but exclude a book with explicit directions on killing others and escaping detection. Likewise, that same library might have a whole shelf of books about human anatomy and physiology, and yet exclude pornography. The need to make such decisions is the reason that librarians are hired. It does not take great ability to check out a book to a customer. Putting books on the shelves in their proper places can be taught in an afternoon. The fundamental training librarians need is to judge what books should be placed on the shelves. These insights are especially important in the children's room. However, in the past decade or so, Many librarians have come to see themselves as missionaries of leftist social justice. That attitude erodes public trust in the librarians' decisions. The New Republic trivializes parents' legitimate concerns. It offers this brief history lesson. Quote, 
The Catholic cold warriors of Citizens for Decent Literature in the 1960s sought to spare young minds from the lure of pornography and a seduction into communism. The 1970s-era Family Values voters of Save Our Children crusaded to protect students from the lavender menace of gay and lesbian teachers recruiting in classrooms, posing a peril to the nation. Right-wing groups periodically reorganizing themselves as a new kind of concerned parent is not new." Since the New Republic's usual contributors and readers are far to the left, the author says that parents feared these situations in decades past. The present concerns are mere reincarnations of foolish fears. However, there is a response to such accusations. Indeed, the fears of the parents of the 60s and 70s have come to pass. Pornography is rampant in today's oversexed society. This process did not happen overnight. Indeed, the liberals themselves complain about increasing rates of sexual violence. Millions of pseudo-intellectual college and high school students were seduced by the lure of communist ideology. Teachers promoting the LGBT ideology now confuse thousands of students, some to the point that they are willing to mutilate themselves. Indeed, the question is not, why are so many parents concerned? The real wonder is, why aren't more parents screaming for decency? These librarians are the ones helping to destroy America's social fiber. Nor do the leftists limit themselves to library. After all, many children, including some of the most impressionable, never enter a public library. The quickest way into a child's mind is in the school. That is a reason that an organization called the Satanic Temple sees schools as such a fertile field to gain recruits. So far, alert parents and others have been able to prevent most schools from hosting the Satan clubs that the temples want to create. However, that success has not been uniform. In some schools, the satanic temples have successfully planted their horrible seeds. In his essay, Making a Deal with the Devil, How a Virginia School Board Allowed a Satan Club in School, Mr. Joseph Jensen's describes one such situation. Recently, my fellow TFP volunteer, Jonathan Marin, and I made a trip down to Chesapeake, Virginia, about an hour's drive from the historic Jamestown settlement. The reason for our trip was not to visit this historic site. Instead, we came to join a group of local Catholics in opposing the sinister after-school Satan Club at B.M. Williams Primary School. It is an ongoing protest which we as young people need to resist. A public square rosary rally opposing the Satan Club was held outside Chesapeake's Municipal Center, with about 30 people in attendance. Quote, I think it's ridiculous, but who would think that they would have an after-school Satan Club? Rally organizer Steve Sheerbaum asked attendees. Please just speak up against something, he added, referring to a public library board meeting about the club taking place later that evening. 
Chesapeake's residents are no strangers to adversity and tragedy. Only months before, a man had walked into a Walmart break room with a gun, tragically killing six workers. Eerily, it was discovered that the shooter had left a death note in which he said, quote, I did not plan this. I promise things just fell in place like I was led by the Satan. Unquote. Then, in February, the Satanic Temple received permission to start an after-school Satan club at B.M. Williams Primary School. The resulting uproar spread even more fear and chaos at the diabolical inroads into the community. It was in this supercharged atmosphere that the school board met to discuss allowing the Satan Club to continue meeting on school property. Attendees from the Public Square Rosary Rally, earlier that afternoon, came to the public meeting to voice their disapproval of the Satanist program. A Catholic lady, Elaine Franco, went up to the podium to voice her opposition. Quote, It makes no sense that educators agreed to allow a group of Satanists to have access to young children. School officials seem to care more about being politically correct than about the well-being of the children, Mrs. Franco said, adding that, quote, At issue is protecting children from questionable individuals, unquote. Another lady strongly stated, quote, Satan is the father of lies and this club is the spawn of the satanic temple, unquote. It appears that the superintendent literally made a deal with the devil, another lady added, referring to the school board's approval of the Satan club to meet on its premises. Sadly, when it came time for the school board to vote, some board members who had been elected based on anti-woke, anti-critical race theory platforms voted 5-4 to four in favor of allowing the Satan Club to continue meeting. What can we do about these inroads of the Satanists into all aspects of life? First, we must be vigilant. As St. Peter wisely counsels, Be sober and watch, because your adversary the devil as a roaring lion goeth about seeking whom he may devour. See 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. So the first step is to be on the alert and keep an eye on what is being promoted in local schools, libraries, and so on. A second point is to take action. Unfortunately, Many times the evil people are much cleverer and better organized than the good people. Just one example of a means of action could be to form a prayer group that can react to any Satanist activity by launching a public rosary rally before it is approved. When elected officials betray the trust of the voter, the public must keep up the pressure and protest. Finally, we must confide in our Blessed Mother. Devotion to Our Lady, especially through the Holy Rosary, is essential in these troubled times. We need to remember that God promised in sacred scripture that Our Lady will crush the head of the devil. With this certainty of victory, we must press forward in this spiritual battle with courage and confidence.
The American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family, and Property stands ready to coordinate opposition to such Satan clubs. Those who hear about such a club being formed are urged to contact the American TFP at its national headquarters in Spring Grove, Pennsylvania. Of course, pornography and Satanism are not the only places that the left is trying to make inroads into the American life and schools. Another is in the area of so-called gender ideology. In this, the leftists enjoy full-throated cooperation of the national government. Mr. Benson discusses this calamity in his essay, President Biden's False Compassion Forces Reluctant States to Fly the Transgender Banner. On March 13, 2023, The Daily Show released an interview of Mr. Biden with Cal Penn. Their topic was the attempts of Arizona, Arkansas, and Tennessee to ban sex change procedures for those under 18. Florida's Department of Health officially recommends against them. Texas investigates those who seek such procedures for minors. Alabama, Arizona, Arkansas, Florida, Iowa, Mississippi, Montana, North Dakota, Oklahoma, South Dakota, Tennessee, Texas, Utah, and West Virginia closely regulate or forbid student-athletes from competing as any sex not found on their original birth certificates. According to the pro-transgender site called Fatherly, Over 150 state laws addressing so-called transgender concerns have been proposed nationwide. The hyper-leftist American Civil Liberties Union, ACLU, places the number of proposals on a far higher plane, 385. Such state laws and proposals comfort anyone with the slightest comprehension of natural law. The distinction between males and females has been evident since humanity's earliest beginnings. Culturally, masculinity and femininity are expressed in myriad ways reflected in fashions, manners, and interests. Traditionally, societies have celebrated and cultivated the differences. People did not seek to be that which they were not. This distinction extends above all to biology. While expressions may differ, the category of sex is fixed. That characteristic is to use a modern word, binary. God imprints that unchangeable code on every cell in the human body. However, President Biden rejects this scientific fact. He wants to end states' abilities to respond to widespread dissent against far-left social doctrines, redefining and broadening the meaning of one's sex. Hence, the Daily Show interview of Mr. Biden with Cal Penn, the show's guest host. Of course, the president is not about to let himself fall into the hands of an interviewer who disagrees with him. Mr. Penn is an actor— an open homosexual who served in the White House Office of Public Engagement during the Obama administration. Mr. Biden is well known for using his deceased parents to lend a folksy charm to his social justice positions. His evening on The Daily Show was no exception. 
CNN quoted him as saying, quote, What's going on in Florida is, as my mother would say, close to sinful. It's just terrible what they're doing, unquote. Then the president applied the mask of understanding that he can never find when discussing those with whom he disagrees. Quote, It's not like a kid wakes up one morning and says, You know, I decided I wanted to become a man or want to become a woman or I want to change. I mean, what are they thinking about here? They're human beings. They love. They have feelings. They have inclinations. Unquote. Mr. Biden seems to say that an inclination is a biological imperative. An inclination forces people to act in ways that they would otherwise find reprehensible. An inclination, by this definition, is more important than God, human nature, family, morality, and public safety. It is a step into the mindset of the late Sigmund Freud, where repressing that inclination can cause immense mental harm. In the sense that the president uses it, Merriam-Webster describes an inclination as a, quote, particular disposition of mind or character, unquote. They should not be opposed or disciplined. All people have inclinations, hundreds of them. They can be simple preferences, such as the choice between pancakes and French toast. They can be activities and tasks that people are willing to do and those that they avoid. They are involved in one's choice of friends, colors, styles, entertainment, and much else. Likewise, inclinations can lead to moral decisions involving virtue or vice. Those inclined toward the biblical expression of charity, see 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verses 4 through 8, are capable of epic numbers of good works. An inclination toward selfishness leads to innumerable sins. Moral behavior is a case of following one's virtuous inclinations and shunning those that lead toward evil acts. The president fails to recognize moral behavior in the inclinations. Thus, vice is disguised in the costume of virtue and vice versa. Mr. Biden is using the language of false charity to promote a reprehensible process that imprisons young people into a physical prison of mutilation based upon the impulses of a moment. Opposing this is not close to sinful. It prevents an act that offends God and man. The states trying to resist those impulses should be congratulated, not castigated. All too often, death represents one last chance for Satan to get his hooks into souls before that inescapable moment that God judges them fit for heaven or hell. So the evil one is especially present at deathbeds. That is the reason that many families traditionally gather together around their dying loved ones to offer prayers and encourage the loved one to be faithful and fearless in the face of death. However, too many people die alone, without the comfort of family, friends, or clergy. All too often, the hospital and government see the dying as inconvenient. 
like any other bureaucrats, they strive to deal with such annoyances as quickly and dispassionately as possible. In the concluding essay for this episode, Mr. Michael Haynes asks a crucial question. Is mandatory mass suicide for the elderly the future? As individuals and nations rapidly advance along a path completely divorced from reality, how human life is understood and valued is becoming increasingly apparent as calls to engage to murder those who are deemed a hindrance. This has been evidenced for decades now by the practice of abortion. Country after country has fallen prey to the ideology that unborn babies need to be slaughtered to somehow bring happiness, personal freedom, or fulfillment to men and women in society. Indeed, if a nation allows its citizens to dismember and murder their unborn at will, then it cannot be described in any other manner than being a moral decline, a free fall. Yet, as if the relentless murder of the unborn was not enough, those resolved on advancing the culture of death have turned their sights in recent years to the elderly. The old and infirm apparently now merit the same description as the murdered unborn. They are deemed annoying, without any purpose, a drain on resources, and ultimately are in the way. These key words form the ideological groundwork of each and every argument by which activists propose new ways to advance euthanasia or assisted suicide. A recent case that has shocked those who still value human life is that of the 37-year-old Japanese man Yusuke Narita. Narita is an assistant professor of economics at Yale University, a position he has held since 2013. Recently, comments he made in a 2021 video interview resurfaced online, which led to Narita earning media infamy overnight. Responding to a question about how to handle Japan's demographic issues, Dr. Narita stated, quote, I feel like the only situation is pretty clear. In the end, isn't it mass suicide and mass seppuku of the elderly? Unquote. Seppuku is the brutal custom of ritual suicide of disemboweling followed by decapitation. Born out of samurai practice, ritual suicide was deemed more honorable than allowing oneself to be defeated in battle and thus fall into the hands of enemies. That practice is more widely known as harakiri. But this was not the only instance in which the Yale-based academic advocated for eugenicist policies. In a different lecture to school students delivered last year, Narita expanded on his euthanasia ideas. He referred to the 2019 Swedish horror film Midsummer, in which members of a Swedish cult commit suicide by jumping off a cliff. The cult members committed suicide at age 72, believing it to be an honor. Quote, Whether that's a good thing or not, it's a more difficult question to answer, said Dr. Narita. So if you think that's good, then maybe you can work hard toward creating a society like that. Unquote. A third instance involved the academic raising of the possibility of mandatory suicide in the future, an eventuality appearing to echo the Swedish horror film. 
The possibility of making it mandatory in the future will come up in discussion, Dr. Narita said in another interview. As noted by the New York Times, while Dr. Narita has passed relatively unnoticed in the U.S. until now, he has amassed a large following among Japanese naturals and has nearly 600,000 followers on Twitter. Writing in Newsweek Japan, columnist Masato Fujisaki noted that Narita's comments could not be ignored as merely deluded ravings. Quote, This statement should not be easily viewed as metaphor, wrote Fujisaki. What is more serious is the fact that his comments have been accepted by the other performers of the program who are present at the event. Unquote. Not only were Dr. Narita's comments welcomed by the interviewers, but they represented a growing trend of thought in Japan. Quote, more and more people have a desire to cut off those who may be a burden to them, wrote Fujisaki. Following the media storm surrounding his comments, the Yale academic attempted to backtrack somewhat, informing the New York Times that the terms mass suicide and mass seppuku were just, quote, an abstract metaphor. I should have been more careful about their potential negative connotations, he stated. After some self-reflection, I stopped using the words last year, unquote. Dr. Narita's arguments strike as particularly egregious. In advocating for his elders to commit suicide to somehow make life easier for the younger generations, he demonstrates a total rejection of any value or dignity of human life. His arguments work from the premise that life is a commodity with no worth of its own and no importance greater than any other item which can be purchased and later disregarded. Indeed, they also highlight how society has changed in recent decades. While young, able-bodied men voluntarily went off to fight in the Second World War to protect their elders and families, now that same age group is requesting that they be prioritized above all others. Perhaps they should not be surprising in light of the widespread devotion that modern society now has for abortion, the murder of the unborn. In fact, the promotion of euthanasia appears as the logical consequence of this abortion promotion, since by disregarding the value of the unborn, unseen human life, it is only a matter of time before society begs to lose respect for those who are born and can be seen. Just as killing an innocent unborn baby is presented as a way to remove a problem, so also is euthanasia presented as a way to solve various issues in society. As the rejection of religion and belief in God becomes ever more prevalent, and people view life as something to be enjoyed above all, the meaning of life and death lose their significance. Into this warped view of reality, Dr. Narita's argument thus appears. It is the nihilistic but perhaps predictable result of a belief that life holds no value and is something to be devoted only to pleasure. Resorting to the murder of one's fellow man is no novel development. It has been a temptation ever since the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, evidenced by the murder of Abel by his brother Cain. 
The murder of the innocent young is also evidenced in the annals of history. Yet never before has there been such a paradox as is found today. Modern society posits itself as the most advanced and yet, in fact, is the most backward due to its rejection of fundamental truths such as the existence of God and the consequent meaning of life. Mr. Alex Shaddenberg, the co-founder and executive director of Canada's Euthanasia Prevention Coalition, noted that euthanasia rests on the argument that killing the innocent is the solution to human problems. Quote, The problem with euthanasia is that it creates a scenario whereby killing people is a solution to human problems, he commented to this author. In most jurisdictions, euthanasia is sold as a way to eliminate suffering, whether it be a painful death or chronic and psychological issues. Narita is proposing euthanasia as a way to deal with the demographic winter, the economic and social issues that will result from the looming demographic crisis of having too many more elderly people in relation to the number of young people within a culture, said Schadenberg, who has campaigned against euthanasia for over 25 years. He notes that Japan's looming demographic crisis is not isolated, but is similar to those looming in most Western nations. Pointing to Canada's euthanasia law, he observed how, quote, when killing becomes a solution to human problems, it becomes a utilitarian answer to other problems, unquote. The arguments used to implement euthanasia originally soon changed to become much more free and easy, resulting in increased euthanasia rates. In Canada, it was sold to the culture as a way to offer a so-called peaceful death for people who are terminally ill, and it resulted in killing as a pseudo-answer for people with disabilities and elderly people who are poor, experiencing homelessness, or having difficulty obtaining medical treatment. In Canada, we crossed a clear line in the sand by approving killing as a solution to one problem, and then it was extended to many problems. Such a situation, warned Schadenberg, was likely to happen in Japan if Dr. Narita's suggestions were acted upon. Quote, If Japan were to legalize euthanasia to encourage people to choose an early death based on the demographic crisis, once culturally accepted, it would become a tool for ending the lives of elderly people, especially those with disabilities, who are poor, homeless, or having difficulty obtaining medical treatment. It would lead to a culling of the weak in society. Unquote. This concludes The Leftist Plot. Saturate life with evil from childhood until death. Thank you for listening. Return to order of which this podcast is a part, strives to be a source of light in a dark and disordered world. Your prayers are appreciated. We publish a new episode every week as Tuesday becomes Wednesday at midnight. You can hear our program in two ways. The first is to subscribe to your favorite podcast provider. 
The other is to go to our website, www.returntoorder.org, and click on the podcast link at the top of the page, which will take you to a list with the most recent podcast on top. Listeners can help Return to Order be more effective by giving us a five-star rating with their favorite podcast service. Subscriptions and high ratings mean that more people will find the Return to Order moment online. We would also like to recommend Mr. John Horvat's book, Return to Order. It is available as a free download on our website, www.returntoorder.org, or in printed and recorded form through our bookstore. All rights are reserved. Copyright 2023 by the American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family, and Property, TFP.